Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, if you have a Bible, let's get to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're using one of the chair Bibles underneath the seats, that is on page 670. If you are here for the first time and maybe don't have a Bible, or you're a new Christian, or you're investigating Christianity, or you just forgot your Bible today, uh, you are welcome to use that Bible and to keep that Bible we will gladly replenish those every Sunday if we have to. It would thrill us to just to fill this uh, city with the Word of God. Well, today our theme is going to be unity around the cross. We are working our way through the first uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and we've been it for a couple weeks, and we're going to take a couple months to work our way through this beautiful, raw, gritty, and rugged letter. So I'm going to pray, and then, uh, well, I'm going to read, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to uh, work our way through these really important verses for us today. Let me read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Cephas, by the way, was another name for the apostle Peter. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Well, these are, these are important words for us today, and um, I love being able to preach about a very important topic when it is not necessarily a current problem in the church. And so we're going to talk about unity today, and one of the great blessings is, is we are not reacting to anything other than the fact that this is the next section of the first letter to the Corinthians that we are on. So um, I am uh, particularly excited to uh, consider these matters with you and to make Jesus more clear to us. So let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, thank you for, thank you for life and breath and thank you for the word of God that opens our eyes. It is the power of God. It is, it is, it is what you use to bring life to dead hearts and it's what you use to instruct hearts that you have rescued from death. And so, Lord, we come to your word in utter humility. We ask, God, that we would not come flippantly to it, judging it, but that it would judge us, that it would be like the sword of your Holy Spirit, which it is to cut us open and lay us bare and naked before you. Lord, I 
as we consider these matters of unity in our church and in the Corinthian church and what it looks like for us, we do thank you deeply for the work of the gospel going on in Spain with Brent and Jade. God, I'm just so thankful for our friendship in the gospel and the burden that you are putting on their heart. God, I pray that as Reynolds prayed, that we would not forget, that we would, that we would come alongside of them and be partners in the gospel. And even as we consider these matters for our context in a very comfortable setting, that, God, we would understand that what is at stake here of us being a healthy church is nothing short of the gospel's advance in our city and all around the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our eyes. I pray that Christians in this room who have been Christians for a long time or just a short time, I pray that they would see Jesus, that I would see Jesus more clearly and that my affections and my love would be stirred for Him so that I would love Christ more and His people more. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus, whether they realize it or not. I pray, God, that You would save them by the power of the gospel, that You would cause them to be born again by the living and abiding and perishable incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And I pray that as we leave this place today, Lord, we would say that surely Jesus has spoken to me, that your Spirit would open up our hearts and make you more clear. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a little background on where we are. Remember, Paul is God's missionary to the Gentile world. And we read about the start of the Corinthian church from Acts chapter 18. Paul planted... This church amidst much hostility. In fact, a couple of his early converts, Sosthenes and another other guy, Crispus, they got dragged out behind the church. The first meeting or two got beat up. And uh, so Paul plants this church in a very carnal city of Corinth. And the church now has started. Paul spent 18 months there. He's now left. He's gone into Ephesus. Revival is breaking out at Ephesus. And he, he hears back from a few of his associates and Chloe's peoples, we read that there's problems now in the Corinthian church. We think that he probably wrote the Corinthian church four letters. And what we know of as 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians are probably the second and the fourth letter that he writes to them. Because he refers in both of those letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, to other letters that he wrote to them because of problems in the church. They were a very gifted people. God had really, had really blessed the Corinthian church with a lot of people of influence and of spiritual gifting, but they were carnal people. I mean, they were routinely uh, preferring themselves over one another. They were, uh, they were really uh, into all sorts of really crazy sexual immorality, and uh, they had very misconstrued ideas doctrinally of who Jesus is and about what marriage was supposed to be about and what communion meant and what the resurrection meant and what spiritual gifts meant. And so Paul is writing this letter to correct their very poor and selfish views of what it meant to live for Jesus. And now, after the first nine verses that we read over last week, that Paul very, uh, very instructively starts off a letter that he's going to, for 16 chapters, really just sort of lay the bazooka on these people and just absolutely beat them up for the sake of the gospel in their church. He starts off his letter by thanking God for them and talking about how his love overflows for these people. So that's instructive that he would do that. And then he now gets into a bit of the problem. And one of the problems in the Corinthian church is that it was beginning to be very factionalized. There was, it was, there was lots of little camps and parties within the church, and they were beginning to be divided. And so Paul now writes to them, and he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree 
that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I think it's important as we kind of work our way through, and then I've got three kind of concluding thoughts, that we realize that first of all, Paul, he makes his appeal, he gains his authority based on the name of Jesus. What's at stake here in the Corinthian church, what's at stake in our church as we seek to be unified is clearly and simply the name of Christ, the, the health of the gospel, the clear presentation of who Jesus is. And Paul is not upset at the Corinthian church because they're quarreling, because it makes the church less enjoyable for people who are already Christians. Paul is so adamant and fervent that they work out their divisions because what is at stake here is nothing less than the advance of the gospel and the clear witness of Jesus. And I love this type of tension in Paul's letters to the New Testament churches because, and I think it's no secret here, if you're around here for more than a couple weeks, you will know that one of the things doctrinally that I think the Bible affirms that I am most passionate about is the sovereignty of God in the evangelization of the nations and of individuals. Nothing can thwart God's hand. God has a people and He knows who they are and He sovereignly brings them to Himself. However, that great and wonderful biblical truth does not release Christians and churches from their responsibility of living under the authority of Scripture and advancing the gospel. Because we could sit back and say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. He's God. He knows the end from the beginning. And so he's going to do it. So why send missionaries to Spain? Or why be a church that preaches the gospel or tries to evangelize our city? Because, listen to me, there are people in Corinth who would not become Christians if the Corinthian church didn't iron out their problems. And likewise, there are people in Columbus who will or will not come to saving faith in Jesus depending on whether churches like Crosspoint and all the other Bible-believing churches in Columbus are faithful to who God has called us to be. So what's at stake here is not our enjoyment or our family atmosphere or our kumbaya ethos. What's at stake in Corinth and in Crosspoint is the gospel and nothing less. And Paul starts off by appealing to them in the name of Jesus for this. And he goes on to say in verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, Chloe was probably a very wealthy businesswoman who was probably a convert. We're not totally sure, but she was very likely a wealthy businesswoman who, at least by her directly or some of her uh, household, whether it was her children or servants that worked for her or kind of her business associates, were helping to fund Paul's ministry. And so these people are now coming to Paul and they're saying, hey, bro, man, we just stopped by Corinth to sell some stuff. And, bro, you wouldn't believe it. They're, I mean, they're whack. I mean, they're getting drunk. They're cutting in front of each other in the communion line. This one cat married his stepmom. It's getting ugly, brother. It's getting ugly. I think you, it's about time for you to break out the pen, Paul, and write a letter. And so Paul writes a letter now back to them because Chloe and her associates now who are friends of Paul tell, them, tell him that there's this this, this dividing in the church. And he says, there's, he says, I'm hearing that there's quarreling among you. In verse 12 he says, Some of you say that I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so what's happening is, is that within the Corinthian church, there's these people who are kind of developing camps. 
And some of them are saying, and this is pretty instructive here, you kind of think that maybe just these four names are sort of pulled out of a hat, but I don't think they are. I think there's something important behind why Paul mentions these four names, one of them being himself, and then one of them actually being Jesus. But some people were saying in the church that I follow Paul. Now, Paul was an ethnic Jew. He was ethnically Jewish. He was a Hebrew. But yet Paul had sent him primarily in his mission to go to the Gentile world and preach the gospel there. Although it was his pattern as he went into cities, he would go to the synagogue, try and persuade the Jews, and then once the Jews refused him primarily, then he'd go on to the Gentiles. Remember, he did that in Acts chapter 18 in Corinth. He went to the temple, he went to the synagogue, tried to win the Jews to the gospel, but when they forsook him, he went on to the Gentiles. And then Peter, or Cephas, was... uh, also a Jew, he was one of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, ethnically Jew, was with Jesus during his three years ministry on earth, was a witness to his crucifixion and his resurrection, and his primary ministry was to the actual Jewish people who Peter, the Lord, was using to try and convert them to faith in Christ as the true Messiah. And so the way it kind of worked out was, is that Peter, both of them, Peter and Paul, ethnic Jews, but Peter's primary ministry in the providence of God in the New Testament seems to be more towards the Jews. And Paul's primary ministry, although he was a Jew, seems to be toward the Gentile world. And so there's a lot of thought here amongst commentators that write many books about 1 Corinthians is that there was some sort of racial division between the camps here within the Corinthian church, that you've got some Jews who have become Christians and they're sort of lining themselves up with Peter. And then you've got some Gentiles who have received the gospel, who are ethnically different from the Jews, have received the gospels, and Paul's kind of their boy because he sort of represents their interests. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 15, one of the big questions, in fact, the first member meeting, like we're going to have in a couple weeks, this was the issue that they were deciding. Can the Gentiles who are receiving the gospel actually be Christians? And in order to be a Christian, don't you have to go through all the things that we did for these past hundreds and hundreds of years to lead up to Jesus? I mean, don't you have to observe our dietary laws? And don't you have to kind of worship in our festivals? And don't you have to hate to bring this up? But don't their guys also have to get circumcised? And so there was a whole member meeting for the first church in Acts chapter 15 about whether or not the Jewish converts were going to have to be circumcised. (laughs) That's the first issue of the business meeting in the church. And so, the, thankfully, because Paul and the other early apostles realized that what it was at stake there was adding something onto the gospel, the church decided that, no, 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 we don't need to add on these other requirements in order for these Jewish converts to be true Christians. But still, there's this fissure. There's this schism in the church, and there's this underlying racial tension very likely in the New Testament churches between the Jews and the Gentiles. And some of them are saying that I'm following Paul, and the others are saying I'm following Peter. Just a quick little note here. Uh, Look, we live, we're not that many decades removed from terrible, terrible racial division, overt racial division in our area in this region. And... By God's grace, things have improved. But I think we as Christians need to continually search our hearts 
and examine whether or not there are vestiges of racial division in our hearts. And if there is, the only appropriate response for that is repentance to God and confession to a brother in Christ. Because one thing that will cut off the aroma of Christ and the gospel effectiveness of a church is when they, even subconsciously, do not love and welcome people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnic group. Now listen, I'm a white guy. (laughs) I'm, I'm about as white as you can get. I grew up on Ario Speedwagon in Southern California in the 70s. My name is Brad. I mean, how much... (laughs) <laughs> I actually am half Italian and I have an Italian last name and I went downstairs one day when I was a little kid I watched The Godfather and I wanted a much more ethnic sounding Italian name like Carlo or Mario or you know Giovanni or something like that and I went downstairs and my middle name is Michael and I thought it sounded because that was Michael Corleone the, uh, Al Pacino's name in The Godfather and I can't believe that my parents actually let me watch The Godfather when I was nine but anyway I came downstairs and I said, uh, I said Mom I want to I want to go by Michael, Michael Evangelista. It sounds so much more Italian. And both my parents in unison said, shut up, Brad. They didn't. They didn't. But then later on, when I was in high school and I had this sort of fascination with my ethnic heritage, I said, Mom, you know, the deal about Brad is, first of all, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's like a paper clip. It holds pe- like papers together. That's so like. And then it, it's like it's so suburban Southern California, you know, 70-ish. And she says, well, actually... You were born in the 70s in suburban Southern California, so that's what you are, you little cracker. Brad! <laughs> but listen, there, there, is a, there is a peculiar grace that rests on a church that revels in people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And I long for the day when Crosspoint looks a little bit more like America. I do. I long for that day. And we're, look, I don't think anybody's doing anything wrong necessarily other than maybe we just need to repent of our sin. If there's any subconscious thing in us. And, uh, and, and we need to pray that God would do that. I, I think churches run off the tracks when they try and intentionally go after ethnic groups just to assuage their white guilt. But I, I do think that one thing we can do is just pray that God would, would show us that peculiar favor of an aroma of Christ among us, that we would look like America and, uh, and, you know, not like a grown-up, you know, Ario Speedwagon concert, <laughs> whatever, I don't know. Right, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off the rails. Let's keep going. And so they're saying, I'm following Paul, and I'm following Apollo, I'm following uh, Cephas or Peter, so there's some racial division there. Then some of them are saying, I'm following Apollos. And what was going on there was Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew, And he was a gifted orator. We read about him in Acts and then later on in 1 Corinthians. And we know that one of the schools of thought, one of kind of the dominant things going on in Corinth at that time, was that there was a lot of philosophical emphasis. And there was this group of people called the sophists, from which we get, in fact, it's the root word there of sophists, is the Greek word sophia, which means wisdom, which we get our our word sophisticated from. And these sophists were sort of like intellectual social commentators commentators that majored on social rhetoric and speech giving. And so it was kind of a job of these sophists to sort of travel around the New Testament world at the time, especially in Greece, which is where Corinth was, 
and they would, they would just sort of practice their rhetoric in the public square and talk and engage in you know, social commentary, political discussion, kind of like you know, the, the political talk shows on Fox News and MSNBC. And you know how some people that are like the commentators on those shows, they're just, it's like their job is just going on those shows to be the commentator for the left or right or whichever side that they represent? Well, that's what these sophists were. They were people that were trained in public speaking, and it had kind of developed into this culture where they were, they were more judged by the eloquence of their speech rather than the content of what they were really saying. That sounds sort of familiar, doesn't it? I mean, we elect people based on whether or not they're good speakers. Who knows what they stand for? That guy's just got some charisma, so let's elect him. And, and by the way, that is not a commentary on any particular candidate. That has been the case for the longest time. And so that's what's going on here. And Apollos was sort of trained in that school, but he then became a convert to Christianity. And God was using some of his eloquence and oral gifts to bring to bear on the sake of the gospel. And some of the more educated sort of snobby people that are converting to Christianity now are now sort of preferring Apollos' preaching to Paul's because he was a little bit more sophisticated and we'd rather hear that highbrow version of the presentation of the gospel. And we don't want sort of this, this little hairy-knuckled guy, Paul, who's short and has kind of got you know, spit coming out of his mouth and he's a little rough around the edges and every now and again he lets one you know, rip and just flings out some deal and throws out some, you know, you know, maybe some words that we're not comfortable with. And, and so we would prefer the more cultured uh, presentation of Apollos. And so there was this group of people that were kind of siding with Apollos. And Paul writes to them and he's saying, brothers, that when you do this, you're dividing Christ. That, that you're making a poor witness for the gospel when you sort of line up your preferences along a personality and for a personality. And let me just, let me just stop and say this, is that uh, it is unhealthy for a church to, to have a, a, a too much dependence on one personality or leader. Um, and one of my concerns, and I don't know how to say this without sounding just really just sort of self-focused. I just, I feel like I'm going to have to, after I get done preaching, I'm going to have to go scrub myself down because it just feels so weird saying this. But one of the things that will really be an indicator of Crosspoint's health is that as we grow, that it can kind of be less about me and my personality and more about kind of what Christ is doing sort of all amongst us. Now, I am not, again, I, I want to take a shower right now. I just feel so creepy for saying that. But I, I am aware that, you know, Jennifer and I, by the Lord's grace, planted this church. And I am aware that God has given me some gifts that he has brought to bear on this particular work that he wants to use. And it is my, it is my heart to give the balance of my life to uh, serving the gospel amongst you in this city, in this church. But as Crosspoint grows, it's got to be kind of become less and less about me and the gifts that God has given me and more about other people and the gifts that God has given us collectively. You will kill your pastor. You will kill me if um, you don't give me the freedom um, to kind of back away a little bit at times and not have to be the main energy behind everything. You will kill me. Maybe not physically, although that might happen, but spiritually you will kill me. Uh, I know too many stories of pastors who had really effective ministries and and into 20 or 30 years into their ministry to church because it was always all about them. It just, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, they just, it just blew up. Or they just became a guy that nobody 
thought he was, and it just it, it blows up. You, it, there's there's there's, a, there's idols in the hearts of every pastor, and I can imagine Paul as he's hearing back from Chloe's people, and they're saying, "Hey, Paul, you've got a group here. They're saying it's about you," and I imagine Paul probably had to fight idols in his heart, like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the people that are saying I follow Paul are right." And, and it thrills me when you guys encourage me. It really does. But there are idols in the heart of every pastor that he has to fight. And, and the best way that I can serve you, friends, is to not be the most important spiritual figure in everybody's life in this church. The best way that I can serve you is to keep my face in the Bible and to prepare my heart to pray for you and to preach and to lead this church kind of from a 30,000-foot level, not to be the central guy in everybody's life. We started with 20 or 30 people, and I knew everybody. I was at every little thing. I was at every party. I was at every deal. And honestly, we just can't do that now. And I feel all the time like I'm letting people down. And I have got to have the freedom to sort of repent of that self-idolization guilt feeling and kind of become the guy that's not critically important to everybody. To do that, we need to have more leaders in this church rise up. We need a plurality of elders. We have Reynolds and me now. We need more. Uh, we need people that, can, uh, that God has called men. We, this is why we believe that the, the, the church should not be led by a senior pastor. The senior pastor of Cross Point is Jesus. I am just one of the elders here. I don't have a say that can trump. When we do things here, I can't just say, well, we're going to do this. We're going to start this ministry. We have to run that by our elders. And it's healthier for a church if we have a lot of people, a lot of elders, several elders, a body of elders that are making those decisions. And by the way, incidentally, this is why it's important for you to give. Because as a church, if we're going to grow healthily and be able to staff a church so that I don't fizzle out and become a, a, a casualty of ministry in about 10 years, it's important for us to share the burden. And that's why it's important for you to give because pastors, and we'll talk about this in 1 Corinthians 9, your pastors and elders need to be compensated according uh, so that you don't muzzle the ox is what Paul says. And we'll get into that more in 1 Corinthians 9, but, but uh, that's why it's important for you to give. Having said all this, I just want to say this. That it, 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 my prayer continually is that just less of me, less of Brad's personality, less of Reynolds' personality, less of Paul, less of Hawk, and more of Christ. And that's, that's my heart. And I believe that was Paul's heart for this church as well. So he goes on in verse 15 and he says, uh, I, I say this so that, no one, that, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he kind of has a little bit of a senior moment here. And he's like, well, just to cover all the bases... I did baptize also the house of, household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so Paul was being criticized for not preaching more eloquently like Apollos, and what he's saying here is, is that when you make the gospel about anything other than the content, then you lose the power of the gospel. And so he appeals to this Corinthian church to be unified and to make their heart and the primacy of what was binding them together the gospel. And so let me give you three quick summary points, and then we'll respond in worship about what unity is. And what it looks like for us here at Crosspoint. Point number one. Unity doesn't mean that we have no differences. But rather that we have no divisions. Unity doesn't mean that we have no differences. But that we have no divisions. 
The Bible gives us a real wide, a wide path of how we are to live out the principles that God calls us to, to live for Jesus. The Bible gives us principles and then often much latitude in how to live them out. Just a couple examples. For example, something that's always kind of on the mind of Christians is raising children. Look, there are many different ways to faithfully, biblically raise children. There's many different ways to educate your children. Some Christian parents have a conviction that they want to homeschool their children. Great. That's awesome. We love homeschool families. Some Christian parents have the conviction that they want to send their kids to private school. Awesome. We love private school. Rock it out. Send your kids to private school. Some Christian parents have the conviction that they want to only send their kids to Christian private school. Awesome. We love Christian private school. Send your kids to private school. And some Christian parents think that their kids should go to public school. Awesome. Send your kids to public school and rock it out and serve Jesus faithfully. The problem is, is when sort of one group sort of kind of looks down the end of their nose and sort of says, oh, well, we, we send our kids here or we're going to do this or, you know, just kind of a strange little cult-like kind of weird deal where there's this little group over here and they kind of judge the way. They, listen, they're all, there's many different faithful options. Right. I grew up in a public school on the Mexican border where 75% of the kids didn't even speak English and crack and marijuana was flowing through the corridor of our school like Kool-Aid. <laughs> and I never got mixed up in it by the grace of God. And I, the Lord saved me in that place. And my kids are going to a Christian school and, you know, they're singing corny praise songs from the 80s. I mean, that's what, the, that's what Christian schools do. Right? Some of us look corny. I mean, we were talking about it on the way over here today. Joseph was like, that song, Shine, Jesus, Shine, that's kind of corny. I don't know, whatever. whatever. I'm glad God's giving my kids some discernment. But whatever. If you like that song, look, the point is, is that, look, I gotta, we got differences. But they don't need to be divisions. We all have preferences. But our preferences don't need to become prejudices against other people. Right? And so, so look, we, I, another thing is worship style. Look, you know what, I, you know what really my worship style is? I just kind of want it to be quiet. I want like just a few little instruments and I just, I don't, I, you know, loud music. I think I'm getting older. It just gets me excited and just, ah, I start sweating. Uh, some of you would love an organ. Awesome. Some of you Want the 80s camp song? You know, it only takes a spark to get the fire going. I I mean, you know what God has gifted us with here? He's gifted us with some young guys that can rock it out on a guitar. They got some awesome young lady that can play the the violin. Got a good drummer, a keyboard player. That's what we got. It's not any better than anything else. It's not better than an organ. It's not better than traditional worship. We are not reacting to anything. We love all types of worship here. And there are faithful expressions. But this is what we got. And so, look, if it's different from what you're accustomed to, okay. We're not making any statements about it, but if you're going to call Crosspoint Home, kind of get, get with it. And this is what we got. We're not making any judgments on anything else. It's a difference, but it need not divide us. In fact, um, like I said, I grew up on REO Speedwagon and, and Chicago and Journey and all those bands that kind of sounded the same back in the early 80s. You know what I'm talking about, folks. Don't act like they all, it was all the same stuff. But, you know, lately I've kind of got into Christian rap. Uh, I, I know that's a little surprising to you, but back last spring, I went to this conference up in Capitol Hill Baptist Church 
with Mark Dever, senior pastor there, and a, a young guy that's doing an internship there, a young uh, Christian rapper that is really becoming well-known. His name is Shai Lin. I got to meet him and hang out with him. And this, guy's, this guy and a couple other of his uh, friends that are just a resurgence of theologically sound rap music that is catching fire in the Christian world. I mean, black kids, white kids, Hispanic kids, this stuff is theologically robust. And I tell you, I, I told Shia, and then I said, brother, I'm going to spend the next year trying to get you to come down to Columbus. And with a bunch of southern folks that like sweet tea and country music, we're going to have a, a rap Christian concert here. And all seven of us that will be here are going to love it. But I tell you what, it's the, it is, it's unbelievable. This I mean, the lyrics of these songs are so theologically robust, and I worship. Me and Joseph ride to school listening to Shai Lin sing about the crucifixion. Oh, it's, it's, it's rich. So we have differences, but these differences need not become divisions. How does this work itself out at Crosspoint? Well, theologically, a lot of times churches will have divisions. Theologically here, and this kind of gets to the more heart of the matter here, is that we have, Reynolds referred to it earlier, we have what's called a two-handed view of theology. And what we mean by that is there are things that we hold in a closed fist. These are matters that are essential to faithful Christian orthodoxy, that Christians have believed since the time that the apostles were writing the New Testament letters and were formulating the doctrine of the New Testament church and faithful Christianity. And by that I mean we believe that the Bible is completely true. We believe that God expresses himself as a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We believe that there's a real heaven and there's a real hell and that that is the only option for every eternal option for every human being in this room. We believe that there's salvation by Jesus alone and that you must repent and believe and be born again in order to be a Christian. We believe uh, these things are held in a closed fist. We believe that you have to really believe these things in order to be a biblical Christian. And these are things that we are building our church on. Now, there are many other issues of doctrine, which may be very important issues of doctrine, that we think Christians who are faithfully trying to live out the admonitions of Scripture can truly faithfully disagree on and still love one another. Now, it's not to say that these open-handed issues are not important, but it's to say that we're not going to, by God's grace, hopefully divide over these issues. Issues in the open hand are issues like spiritual gifts and whether or not they're still available today. I personally believe that they are, but we're not going to divide over those issues. Issues about baptism, infant or believer. We, I, I practice believer baptism, but if you come from maybe a, a Presbyterian heritage, that's fine. But we're not baptizing babies here, but that, that's okay. We don't have to divide over that. Issues about God's sovereignty and salvation. I think you guys know that those are issues that are important to me. I believe in the eternal security of people who are truly born again. I believe when the Bible talks about predestination and election that it means something. It's not stuff that we just came up with. I believe that it means something, and I believe that God is sovereign over the salvation of men, but it's an open-handed issue. Uh, Women in ministry, we believe that women can serve in ministry, but women can't be elders or pastors, but we're open-handed with people that may disagree with those things. And so these are things that are in open, open hand, and these are things that are in a closed hand. And we believe that as a church, we want to build a generous, humble, gracious atmosphere where we build our church around the orthodox, fundamental doctrines of faithful Christianity from the first century. So whether you're a Baptist or a Pentecostal or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or an Episcopalian person or whatever you are, non-denominational, all Christians from the beginning of the first century until now should be able to, if they're biblical, and they understand they should be able to agree on this. And these are things that we're going to discuss 
and robustly talk about and dialogue, but we're not going to split a church over this. And if you have a pet issue and you just want to, I mean, you just want to beat everybody over the head and try and make them speak in tongues or beat everybody over the head and try and argue that Christians can or cannot lose their salvations or beat everybody over the head and argue whether the earth is young or old or whatever. Jesus is coming back, coming back this particular time or that particular time. Those are things we can talk about, but they're things that we will not, at least as long as I'm the leader of this church, we will not let them become divisive. And even when I preach on the things that I believe passionately in this open-handed view, I pray that I would do it humbly and graciously so that you can work it out for yourself, but it's something that we need not divide over. You need to know that if you're going to make Crosspoint your home church. And so here's three questions that drive us real quickly within this first point. And then we're going to move to the second and third quickly. Three questions that drive us. Who is Jesus? That's the gospel. We want to, we want to answer that question. We don't care about anything else. Primarily, the first question we want to ask is not what type of church we want to be, not what type of music we want to do, not what type of program we want to engage the city with, not what type of preaching style, not what we're going to wear on Sundays, not what curriculum we're going to use, and this, that, and the other. The first question that we want to ask is we want to get the gospel right. Who is Jesus? That's what we care about. Who is Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus, who is the King and the Savior and the only one from whom salvation is given, from His name? That's what we, that's what we have to get right as a church. That's the gospel. Who is Jesus? The second question that flows from that is how has he told us to live together as a church? That's, what, that's the issue of ecclesiology, what we do as a church. Then what type of people? You can't confess to be a Christian and then just live however you want. You can't confess Christ as your Savior and have premarital sex and get drunk and do whatever you do. Those two things are incompatible. That's not to say that there's not grace in the Lord for people that are struggling with sin. And it's not to say that all of us don't fall in sin and struggle at times with flesh. But it means to say if you think that you can be a Christian and just continue to do whatever you want, the Bible is against you and you are not a Christian according to the Scriptures. And the Bible calls us very specifically how we are in humility supposed to live together in gracious redemption so that we would work out what we're supposed to be like as a church so that collectively we as a people who are graciously, humbly encouraging one another to live like Jesus, then we collectively become an aroma. We become a witnessing type of aroma to our, na- to our city and our nation. And so that's the second question we want to We want to ask ourselves, how has he told us to live together as a church? We can't gossip about each other. We can't slander one another. We can't drag each other through the mud. We can't sue each other. We can't sin against one another. These are the things that we're going to talk about in Corinthians. And that's the issue of community. And the third is, and how is he calling us to reach our city and our world? What's the mission God has us on? How is he calling us to do it? And that's something that can change as we grow as a church. But the first two questions never change. Who is Jesus? How has he called us to live together? And then the third question is a question of mission. And so unity doesn't mean that we have no differences, but rather no division, divisions. And the second and third point quickly, point number two, differences. This is back to my main list of three points. Differences drift into divisions unless we humble ourselves and remember the gospel. Differences very easily drift into divisions unless we humble ourselves and remember the gospel. One of my biggest concerns for us as a church is that no, I, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and they say, I've got this preference and I'm just going to come to church today and you know, let off a stink bomb over it and just keep you know, sending obnoxious emails until somebody does something about it. 
I don't think anybody wakes up with that sort of attitude. I hope you don't anyway. If you do, then we need to treat you like Sosthenes and drag you out behind the church and beat you. <laughs> but I don't think anybody wakes up like that. I think what happens is, is that when differences don't continually get the gospel beat into them, they can sort of subconsciously drift into divisions. We must actively seek to kill the consumerism and the just prejudice over our own preferences that lurk in each of our hearts. We must actively seek to kill the consumerism and our own prejudice preferences that lurk in each of our hearts. The cross calls us to die to ourselves and to live to Christ and his purposes. It calls us to get outside of our social circles. It calls us a person who's been a member of Crosspoint for three or four years and has a pretty comfortable social circle. It calls you to sort of get outside of that and become somebody who's sort of helping people connect rather than just being comfortable in your social circle. It forces us, the gospel, when rightly applied and received, and when the gospel is coming to bear in our life, it forces us to get outside of our demographic, and it forces us to engage people, to die to ourselves, and to kind, of, to kind of venture out into potential social awkwardness and invite somebody to lunch, to feed a young army guy, or to look at somebody who's kind of on the fringes and to try and reel them in rather than hanging out and doing life with people that you've known for a long time subconsciously we can grow into sort of a navel-gazing, selfish group that only looks inward and then gives voice to the gospel on Sunday. And what happens is when you preach and teach and agree with publicly that the gospel should inform all of our life, but then when it doesn't actually in reality, there's this sort of gap of hypocrisy that widens and widens and widens as the church grows. And so when they get together in their corporate meetings, they say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe in all these things. We believe the gospel crosses barriers. We believe that it should push us out. Yeah, we agree with that. But in reality, when it doesn't actually work itself in and the rich person in this church doesn't have a burden for a poor person in this church or a person that grew up in Columbus doesn't have a burden for somebody that got transferred from out of town or from the army or when somebody with a particular social group doesn't have a burden for somebody outside of their social group. When that gap widens, it becomes a spiritual gap of hypocrisy that is almost impossible to bridge after time goes too long. And we have to continually beat this into our hearts that we not only proclaim the gospel, but we are trying to earnestly live it out in our context and in our community and the gospel calls us to die to ourselves and to live to Christ and his purposes even among us. Romans chapter 12 says that we should outdo one another in showing good. That means we should be elbowing each other, trying to do stuff for one another. It means we should be having meetings, not to talk about one another, but to secretly devise ways in which we might anonymously bless one another. Imagine that. Imagine if a group of people that called Crosspoint home didn't call and say, Hey, did you see what Susie did? Man, John's a punk, man. Can you believe that cat? What if they called each other and said, Hey, let's see how we can bless this family and just drop blessings on them anonymously for the glory of Christ and the good of our community. <laughs> what would that look like, man? Oh, shadow box. All right, let's keep going. And yeah, we must listen. I, I know I'm long, but so what? Where else you got to go? We must continually examine the motivation behind our preferences. We must continually examine the motivation behind, behind our preferences. I have this, I have just this, uh, conviction about most 
of American Christianity, the culture that sort of exists in American church is that most of it is very indulgent and idolatrous. And because of the ego of pastors who desperately just want success in big ministries, they preach to the felt needs of people and tell them what they want to hear and create an atmosphere where we make much of the person and we train, we train congregations, we train children, we train parents, we train a generation that the underlying message of Christianity is that God wants to make much of you. And the way he does that is by catering to your every need through this thing called the church. When in reality, the Bible presents a far different picture of God's work in the world. The picture that that the Bible presents is that God doesn't love us or make us valuable by making much of us. But at the cost of His Son, He enables us to enjoy making much of Him forever, which is actually where true joy and satisfaction and value is found. When most of American church culture goes the other way, that God's here to make much of you. But in reality, He makes much of Himself and He enables you to make much of Himself at the cost of His Son so that you would enjoy Him forever. That's where true satisfaction is. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, when we make much of ourselves, we empty the cross of its power. But when we die to ourselves, as Galatians 2.20 says, when we die to ourselves for the sake of Christ, and we make much of Him, that is where true life is. And when a church, whether it's in Corinth or Columbus, does that, a special grace and a special drawing and a special evangelistic spirit and a special joy and a special health rests on that place because it's not about this guy or that guy or this program or this kids ministry or my group of friends, but it's about the beautiful aroma of Christ that alone saves. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and the Holy Spirit through him is saying to us. My final point is, what is at stake here, friends? Is our effectiveness for the gospel. What's at stake is our effectiveness for the gospel. There are people in Columbus who will or will not become Christians depending on whether Crosspoint continues to be a healthy, unified church that rallies around the supremacy of Christ in all things and not around their preferences. There are people in this room who are not yet Christians. You are not all born again. You you are not all born again. If you are, I would be shocked. There's probably 450, 500 people. You are not... You, you are not all born again. There are people in this room right now who need to repent and believe in Jesus. And if you have not done that, you need to do that right now. You need to receive, you need to hear what Christ did, and you need to respond to it. And there are people in this room right now who it hangs in the balance because of the culture of this church, whether it's healthy or not. It hangs in the balance as to whether or not you are in good soil where you might do that, where you might see Jesus. 
What's at stake for us, church, is our effectiveness for the gospel and souls. And so right now, if you're in this room and you have never responded to Jesus, you must do that right now. The gospel is the good, gracious news that God, who is the creator of all things, and gave us life, created man in his own image as a joyful overflow of his greatness. And man... All of us, it's you and me, from Adam and Eve and everyone since, except for Jesus, has willfully rebelled and snubbed our noses at our great, gracious, life-giving God. And our sin, our rebellion against him, brought with it the consequences not of a minimized life or not a less than optimal life, but it brought with it the consequences of death and separation from him forever. And in response to human sin, God sends Jesus the God-man, fully God and fully man, to live among us, to live a life of sinlessness, to live a life of perfection, to live the life that you and I should have lived but didn't live, and then to, in his 33rd year, to lay down his life on the cross to become a perfect sacrifice to appease the wrath of a holy, righteous Father for all of those, not for everybody, but for all of those who would repent and believe in his sacrifice. And then God offers, now through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he offers life. In fact, he commands all men everywhere, and you are among that number. He commands all men everywhere to repent and believe and trust in Jesus for their salvation alone. Not to trust in yourself or not to trust in the relative minimal nature of your sin compared to some guy that you know that's worse than you, but to trust in what Christ did alone, the wrath of God rests on the head of every person in this room who does not believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus. What are you trusting in? If you are not trusting in Jesus, what awaits you is, whether it's shortly or in another 40 or 50 years, what awaits you is sure eternal judgment and separation from God forever. Friends, that's the gospel and the good news of the gospel. And that's what that word gospel means, is that if you will repent and believe right now and trust in Jesus alone, not in your self-efforts to make yourself right, not in the relative lack of your sin compared to somebody else, but in Jesus alone. The Bible says that you will be saved. And what awaits you is eternal joy forever with him in this life and forevermore. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be puppy dogs and lollipops and dandelions from here. God may call you to die in a faraway nation for the sake of the gospel, but friends, that's the most joyful thing you can do is give your life away for the gospel. So respond to Jesus right now. Stop your sin. Stop your hypocrisy. And give your life to Jesus right now. I was just like you. I was caught up in a life of secret sin and hypocrisy. And God in his graciousness saved me by the power of the gospel when he made Jesus clear to me. And I realized that my sin, Jesus died for my sin if I would repent and believe in him. You must do that today as well. You must do that today as well. Do that right now, even as I'm praying. Repent and believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. And he will save you. Lord, thank you for these words, for Paul's words about unity in the church. I thank you for the unbelievable unity that you've given us as a church for these five and a half years. I thank you, Lord, for how sweet you have been to us and how sweet the Spirit has been among us. But Lord, we are naive if we think that the enemy does not want to steal, kill, and destroy. 
We are naive if we think that we're going to advance the gospel in our city and if we think that the enemy will not try and oppose that with all sorts of confusing, confusing uh, divisions and, 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 and modes of opposition. And so, God, I pray right now that in a time of peace in our church, would you hammer this message home that our differences need not become divisions, that our preferences need not develop into prejudices, and that we need not lose the power of the gospel by our own selfish idols. And that, God, right now, as a church, you are calling us to die to ourselves and that we must actively fight to kill the consumerism that lurks in each of our hearts so that we might make much of Jesus and not of us. And the beautiful, the beautiful paradox of all that, Lord, is that when we die to ourselves and make much of Jesus, that's where we find our true value and worth as we make much of you. And so, God, would you now, with the precision of your Holy Spirit, put your finger on areas of disobedience or areas of spiritual laziness or areas of, of consumerism or areas of idols in our life that we need to die to continually. Put your finger on that, Lord. And I pray that the Christians in this room that call Cross Point home would die to it. I pray for those visiting from other churches, Lord, that they would recognize maybe their selfishness or potential areas of weakness and division in their church. And God, that they would that they would pray for gospel unity in that place. I pray for churches in our city that have been in the past divided but are now working their way back to health. I pray that you'd bless those places. I pray that the gospel would be mighty in those places. I pray, in fact, for every church in Columbus, from all different types of denominations, that, Lord, you would bless these churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Pentecostal churches, Presbyterian churches, non-denominational churches, white churches, black churches, Hispanic churches, Asian churches, all sorts of churches, Lord, that believe in Jesus and preach the Bible. God, would you bless them because what is at stake is the gospel in our city and there are people who will or will not become Christians depending on whether or not the churches in Columbus are unified around the gospel. So Lord, would you do that, please? Would you do that, please? And for the Christians in this room, would you cause that to stir our affections for Christ and his people? If there's some sin that needs to be repented of of people in this room as they have sinned against a brother or sister, God, I pray that today they would handle it. Today. And Lord, if there's a person in this room that needs to repent and believe in Jesus, God, would you cause them to be born again? Young man, right now, Christ is calling you to lay down your life, to lay down your life of broken self-worship and to worship the only true King, Jesus. And access into that worship is repentance and belief. That means turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. Do it right now, young man. Do it. Young lady who has idolized the affection of a man, young lady who is lost in sin, right now Christ is commanding you to repent and believe because He demands to be made much of and worshipped and your only true joy will be found in that. So right now, repent and believe. Become a Christian. Now. And now, Lord, as we respond and worship, I pray that you would be pleased. I pray that our songs and our prayers in our receiving of communion for those of us that feel led to do so would be like an aroma before your throne. And I pray that the effectiveness of our gospel witness, Lord, would be like straight as an arrow as we are unified around the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.